Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to this new episode. Today, I have the pleasure to have an expert, a change maker, who is a professor of law, an environmentalist, and an author. I want to introduce Nadia Ahmad. Pleasure, Nadia, for being here. Thank you. It's really a pleasure for me as well to join you. Thank you. Nadia, you are a professor at Bari University at Yale. Uh, you have written a book about environmental justice. So we will discuss this topic and your research. But before that, who is Nadia? Where are you coming from? What is your journey that's taken you to be an expert in the sustainability field? For me, as someone who grew up and was born and raised in Florida, I grew up close to the Everglades. It was similar to my a rainforest, essentially in, in my backyard. Um, I also would go frequently to the shoreline, to the beaches. During the period I was growing up, I noticed the pollution that would impact the, the coastline. And being situated in central Florida, we were also home to the lightning capital of, of the United States in some rankings of the world. And we also faced uh, a number of hurricanes and uh, tornadoes. And so I was aware of the delicate environmental ecosystem. That was a, a concern that has really followed me when I was young. And then I had become a journalist early on uh, in, in my career. And I worked uh, for the Orlando Sentinel. I also interned for the ABC affiliate WF. TV in Orlando. And then I went off to college uh, and I worked uh, for the Daily Californian at University of California at Berkeley. And um, it was while I was there in terms of the student activism that I was also doing that I noticed that there was also a career that could open up for me in the law. And so I had was kind of on the fence about becoming a journalist and an attorney. And then right after I had graduated, I had gone to study uh, overseas in, in Damascus, Syria. And as soon as I had come back about six months later, 9-11 happened. Uh, and that also forced me to, to look at concerns within my community about civil rights. And when I started uh, law school, I think I was troubled by what was happening, but I also saw an opportunity for me as a Muslim woman to work on areas of corporate social responsibility. And so I tilted more towards working on business and corporate law. And I practiced, uh, you know, different level uh, areas of law, including I represented insurance companies. I also represented uh, municipalities and looked at land use and zoning issues. And after I had practiced law in Florida for about five years, I pursued my master's degree in environmental and natural resources law. Um, and that's really what set me on the path to, to becoming an academic and law professor um, in the areas of environmental uh, law as well as energy law. Thank you so much, uh, Nadia. I can see everybody started with the context and really developed the, the work. And it's, it's a trend that we have in all the episodes. You have written a book, we have seen about environmental justice, and um, you have extensive research about the impact, especially on the most vulnerable community. So I wanted to ask a bit uh, more about that. 
Sure. So in terms of the research that I have been doing, I first started off looking at energy siting in terms of where transmission lines, power lines, and pipelines are being sited. And what I noticed was a correlation between where these siting of these uh, transmission lines were and being located near a frontline uh, community. So I was drawn to that and looking at why are these communities just happen to be located where what I call energy easements are, are located. Uh, and so I found this to be not an issue just in, in uh, communities that I looked at in Colorado or in Tennessee, but this was a nationwide uh, global problem in terms of how pipelines are being constructed. From my vantage point as, as an energy law expert, I see that much of the world in terms of trade and um, energy that develops cir circulates around how pipelines are developed and constructed. Um, and it really impacts regional state, uh, local policy. And I also saw what is happening in my communities in terms of conflicts between Florida and Georgia were sometimes couched as political conflicts or other types of conflicts, but they were actually environmental conflicts over water rights and rivers. I also saw this happening uh, in India and Pakistan, I have what my father is from Pakistan and my mother is from India. And so also in that region, many of the uh, communal conflicts are couched along religious or sectarian lines, but they are also, in fact, uh, natural resource conflicts or, over river rights and water rights. This was part of a larger uh, picture that what I was seeing uh, to emerge. And so from the research I did, on energy siting, I also looked, for example, at the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, the Keystone XL pipeline is essentially why uh, the Republicans were able to seize control in 2014. Uh, when Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, got up to deliver his uh, victory speech, he said that the first part agenda item is to make sure the Keystone XL pipeline passes. And so when I saw this as a part of becoming a political rallying point as well, I really stuck with that area of research and it really carried me for about six or seven years in terms of looking at these issues. Um, and then ultimately, just by chance, the month that President Biden comes to office, issues essentially the death of the Keystone XL pipeline, was this the same month that I also, the faculty voted for, for my tenure. And, and so this is really what has uh, propelled the research that I do. I've also been developing other areas of research uh, as well relating to, to climate change. But really, the, the, what, what has motivated me has been an energy siting. Thank you so much. So it's really interesting and how to see also the impact of these choices to the communities. Let me ask you about, uh, as you say, we say the impacts on the community and women and minorities. Can you explain a bit more? how, you know, especially these projects and uh, others, for example, I've listened to your wonderful TED talk also about biofuel, it can affect the people on the ground and especially poor and rural marginalized communities. When we're looking at natural resource conflicts, especially, for example, relating to energy projects that are funded by large development banks, such as the World Bank or the International Finance Corporation, these projects are, are done to infuse dollars into essentially global south economies. But the issues are that there needs to also be stakeholder engagement, as well as uh, shareholder engagement from the, the companies that are investing. And uh, what I have argued is that this has not been the case. 
and, and many times the projects that are being uh, bankrolled will actually create other harms. So for example, what we consider to be clean energy and that it may have reduced carbon emissions also doesn't look at the social costs associated with it. And so for the research that I did relating to, to biofuels, I found that both in the European Union, and the European Union has, has moved away from this somewhat, but the US is really on the big march for a billion ton bioeconomy, overlooks the land grabs uh, and the, the death squads that also happen by large agricultural uh, companies in the name of developing biofuels. Uh, and also overlooking the impacts that it has, especially to women and young children and those who are elderly and may not have a voice within the political uh, process or even in community engagement, especially for children who are young and under the age of five, uh, women who are both pregnant and lactating, as well as those who are elderly folks, they are especially immunocompromised and are impacted by, for example, by issues such as black carbon in terms of emissions that develop on cooking stoves. And what I had found is when I visited my grandmother in Pakistan in the 1980s, I noticed that she was, was cooking on it, like whether it was a kerosene stove, wood burning stoves, she was inhaling the fumes from the, the, the stove. And, and this was a problem I saw in the 80s. But in the literature in the West, it didn't become a problem until the, the 90s, the, the mid to late 90s. And the reason it became a problem is because someone saw that this carbon that is being emitted is carrying over to the West in, in terms of there, there's being a movement of that pollution. And so as soon as it became a problem for the first world or the block of OECD countries, it became a problem to be recognized or as something I saw as a problem when I was a young girl was overlooked. Thank you, Nadia. And I recall because this is still the burden of women, especially, and, and the fumes and the health hazard of stoves is still a reality that I also face in Kenya a lot of time. It's really a burden for the communities. I want to ask, you know, a bit also about siting and, and the minorities, also because of your experience in the environmental area, coming also from a minority yourself, especially in the States, you have mentioned that after the attack on the Twin Tower, it was very difficult also for you, you have to look at it. Can you shed a bit of light on how the impact, for what the, the relevance also of the environmental justice for minorities? Thank you. For me, I felt that some of the issues, especially surrounding after 9-11, it felt for really a period of about 10, even 20 years, I had to spend all of my life responding to this, this problem of the war on terror without really being able to address the impacts and the collateral damage uh, that has happened. And so I think there is also stress that, that is put on me and other uh, Muslim, especially visible Muslim women, about how we have to constantly, in many ways, create a space for ourselves, as well as be in a defensive position. So I think that creates uh, quite a bit of stress. And so I've become more vocal about that only in maybe the past five or six years. And so what I think that that also does is that it creates a marginalized space. And so we're being spoken to instead of being part of the conversation. Um, and many times when you will see issues relating to depictions of, uh, of Muslims and issues uh, surrounding Muslims, they'll be addressed by people who are not from that community. And so one of the organizing principles of environmental justice is that we speak for ourselves. And so from the work that I was doing uh, relating to environmental rights, it also empowered me to also speak up and advocate more 
on, on behalf of my community, even if it would be uh, unpopular. And I also saw that this was part of a larger global struggle. And so if the last century was the, the century for the United States and for Europe, this century is really the Asian century. And then the, the century that will be after that will really, um, I just read our article in the New York Times, is really going to be the African century. And so we're starting to see uh, that there's been shifts in terms of global dynamics and that our voices are really matter. And one of the things I had done during the pandemic is I wrote an article about what my path was to tenure. And I also noticed that around me, there weren't other women who looked like me in the legal academy in the United States. Uh, there was maybe five women who are like either tenured or on the tenure track who wore hijab. Uh, maybe now there's seven or eight. And so we're actually part of a global majority in terms of the, the population of Muslim women, the number of Muslim women who also uh, you know, identify and are visibly Muslim. And I think that we have to also reclaim the, the space as well. And I also have noticed that the way I am treated um, you know, outside of Florida or outside of the United States is very different than I would even in my home, my home county. And so I think there's also like multiple uh, layers of intersection. And so I would be remiss not to mention that this is Black History Month. And, and right now that there is a lot of concern about what is happening with respect to Supreme Court nominations. And essentially, this will be a month where we will hear a lot of rhetoric against African-American attorney, female attorneys. And we have to contextualize, you know, what is the history of the United States uh, as well in terms of uh, slavery and, and abolition and even after the landmark Supreme Court case of the Board of Education in Kansas in 1954, uh, we are still have heightened levels of segregation in U.S. schooling than we did at when the, the Supreme Court case occurred in 1954. Uh, and also, in fact, in Florida, in, in Seminole County, for example, where I am based, we did not have desegregation in the schooling system until 10 years, a decade after the, the case. And so the schoolgirl who had done that, she said, I felt that I really had to do this, that this was something that was important for not just me, but for solidifying the, the change that, that had been done. And so I think it's important to, to recognize these struggles and see how they have are, are part of a, a larger story. Thank you, Nadia. I think we had in some episodes discussed about, you know, we are one family in the world. And I think your words are really important to see the togetherness and not excluding. And this is also one thing that I'm trying to do in the photo to give voice a very diverse and because together we contribute to the sustainability and to really foster, especially the social side. I really like, I want to ask you this question. I don't know if it's still on the press or if you cannot talk about, I really love that the, the next century will be the African century. Can you give us one or two points? Because it's really also important to broaden our view and really open up our horizons. And I think I, I really do agree that future will be Asia and especially also Africa. Right. And so what I also see is that innovation, for example, that is happening um, in, in the global south. Um, and even if you've already entered, you know, saying what is happening in Africa, what is happening um, in Asia, is that these countries are looking less towards barriers and borders and more about connectivity and cooperation, international and mutual cooperation, not just for engagement and dialogue, but for being able to have development and trade. So, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, there are parts of, of Sub-Saharan Africa 
where there was no electricity at all. There was no mobile, there was no landlines for telephone communications and virtually overnight, you will be able to install uh, solar panels and have electricity. Overnight, you are able to, to have access to mobile cell phone technology. That completely changes and revolutionizes the economy of areas because it extends the, the, the workday. It also creates security and safety for women who are, are traveling on the roads at night. And what this does, it, it accelerates change. If you have school children who are learning English from a tablet without even seeing someone who, has, who is able to, to communicate in, in English, are able to learn from a tablet additional languages. I, I feel, especially in the United States, we have this idea of dominance of a single language or, or, or culture. Even just the idea of knowing one language is why there is an inherent global advantage to other countries. Even in Europe, it is not uncommon for someone to know three or four languages. And I think that ability to be able to connect and adapt to changes is what will propel other parts of the world ahead and what will also hold the, the United States back, uh, especially in terms of this uh, movement towards trade uh, protectionism that is happening in the United States, and, and you know, in the setting up tariffs, where there is part of a global movement more towards free trade uh, as well as fair trade as well. And so I think that is really what what is going to to make uh, the difference is that you have uh, some areas that are more concerned about putting up barriers and borders, uh, and others that are concerned about connecting and as well as being able to interact. Thank you, Nadia. It's true also sometimes my experience, I, I moved from my country 20 years ago, and then I have to learn all the several languages. I am, I think, six or seven languages I speak. So it's really important. Sometimes I found it like, you know, the single language can be a barrier and it can be an advantage because you're a native speaker, but uh, on the other side, you, you miss also the, the way and the engagement and the togetherness that we have. I want to go now a bit personal with you because as you, uh, going back to the previous question about your work as also a, a visible Muslim woman, a professor in, in Yale, so a prestigious university, uh, but also, you know, how you, you combine the two aspects, you know, being a successful researcher, professor, a woman, a leader, and also a mother. It's really how we can break also this, uh, you, you have mentioned a bit of these uh, ceilings that prevent also women, to re and women for minority especially, to reach leadership positions. I, I wanted to, to note that for me, it, it, it's not just about the work that I'm doing, but about the community that I represent but also about bringing others along. So for me, I'm not just looking out for myself for, for my career, but also what my children will be able to do, what my grandchildren, as well as what my community uh, will be able to do. It isn't a matter of how smart they are or even how much access to resources they have, but a matter of what there's idea of grit or what really compels and, and drives them. And so, one of the issues that also re really drives and compels me is the idea of, of about correcting injustices. In, in my field of, of looking at climate change adaptation, as well as environmental justice, two of the related uh, uh, areas that I think are very important for us uh, as a community are related to immigration, as well as abolition of, of prisons, is that in the United States, we spend more money on prisons than we do on education. We also spend uh, more money on war than we do on climate change. 
And so these concerns are what propel me. And I have also found that um, in terms of being able to navigate uh, that it's not as if something that I'm doing, it's part of all the people that are around me and that we are all working together to uplift themselves. It's really for me, my students, as well as my children are the ones that, that push me forward and, and have propelled me to, to speak up more, as well as to, to devote more, more time on issues. And as women, I think that we don't really have a choice in, in many instances in terms of, of how we are, are going to be allocating uh, resources. And I have also found that women are more likely to, to be willing to get things done uh, versus complaining about it. Um, there's a saying that if, if you want something done, you tell a woman to do it. But if you want somebody to have credit taken for it, you know, tell a man to do it. And, and so I think that that is really a part of this issue. And I think that it also builds resiliency um, in a woman as, as well. So there are times, you know, I felt like I don't want to do this anymore. I want to, to quit. Uh, maybe in a situation where I constantly feel the need to quit. But I am really blessed to have a very supportive uh, family. Uh, I have a spouse that, that is willing to support what I want to do, even if that means like more costs associated with it uh, and being able to get more help to do the work that I want to do. It also means that I have, I surround myself with people who believe in the work that, that I want to do because we have to be selfish in terms of not surrounding ourselves with people who don't share the vision that we have of having a world where there can be peace, uh, harmony, and love versus war, famine, and drought. Thank you, Nadia. I think that is your passion. You're, you're really, within all the episode, I, I felt your passion and your, your willingness to change the world and really fight for environmental justice. That is also part of your research in the academia. Since we are approaching the end of our episode, I really want to ask you one final message for our audience, for the people that are listening to us that you want to share. What I want to share is that don't limit yourself before the limits have been imposed. So don't think that anything cannot be done. It's important to have a growth mindset and to think about capacities that you can do. There are things that you will be able to do that you did not think possible. For example, I had a law professor who was elected as state attorney for Orange and Osceola County. And she said during her acceptance or inauguration that this was a dream that I did not even know that I had. So when you move forward, there will be places that you may not be welcome, but it's important to really be able to articulate yourselves and to take ownership of those spaces. And the more that we take ownership of our space within society, as well as our place within democracy, that is what will really propel us forward. Thank you, Nadia, for this insight-packed episode. It was uh, really very interesting also for shedding light in the U.S. situation and especially the situation of minorities and for your work and your really example, also a leader in, the, in your community and also for women in, in other communities. I really want to thank you so much, Nadia, for being here and it was a real honor and pleasure. Thank you so much, Nadia. Thank you, Samuel. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.